this other time at the same McDonald's. I was working early in the morning. All these crazy things happened early in the morning. And another homeless guy walked up. He says, hey, um, someone pooped on the floor in the bathroom. And they smeared it on the walls. And I was like, did you poop in the bathroom? He goes, yeah. And then he just like looks ashamed, turns around, walks out of the store. My manager came up. He's like, well, first off, I went and told the manager what happened. And then he told me, he's like, all right, yeah, can you clean that up? It's like, no, I'm not cleaning it up. At that point, big upgrade. I think at that, that McDonald's was getting like six fifty an hour. It's like, no, I'm not going to clean up this homeless guy's poop. That's all over the bathroom walls. So he did it. That's why he's getting paid the big manager bucks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rising Father Podcast. I'm Chris Rudak. This is episode nine. We're going to go a little bit lighter today. I'm just going to tell some stories about different jobs I've had growing up. And I was talking to some people recently about different jobs I've had across the country in my area. And I was like, man, these are some great stories I need to share. There's some lessons in here that we can all take. But it's just going to, it's just fun to listen to these stories and tell them and have them down on record. So, first off, I got my first job really whenever I was really young because my dad delivered newspapers and, you know, this wasn't exactly a paid job to pay for me. It was him taking us out to McDonald's and getting like a, a cheeseburger afterwards. So my dad would deliver papers late into the night. He also worked a full-time job, works a full-time job as, an, as a computer analyst, but he would do this late at night, deliver newspapers for the Trib by our house, and he'd wake us up. For This is just my memories of this job. I'm sure some some things were different, but we'd be woken up at like 1, 2 a.m. We'd be taken to this newspaper distribution center out in the middle of nowhere, and we would go into this big warehouse where they're printing all these papers, and there's like wet ink everywhere. You could smell it. Didn't My memories of the smell are not great. Didn't smell great. And it was me and my two brothers. My sister probably did it for some of the time, but since I was young, she probably only did it for part of the time. And then my other younger brother, I'm not sure if he did it. So I've got four brothers and four sisters, big family. But, yeah, it was mostly me and my two older brothers at this paper place. So we would wake up real early, go to this warehouse where they were doing papers, and we had a big station wagon to fit all of us in when we'd go on trips and stuff. And we would just load this station wagon up with newspapers. And my brothers and me would just sit in the middle row. There's like two seats up front, there's a middle row, and a huge back area where you could turn around and make faces at the people behind you. So we would sit in that middle area, fill the back up with like a thousand newspapers that just reeked of ink, and in the middle of the night, we would just go driving around neighborhoods, and we would, me and my brothers would just run newspapers up to these people's houses. I don't know how much you got paid for that, maybe, I don't know, not a lot, a couple of cents per paper you delivered, but we would do this all night. And it wasn't bad. It was fun. I kind of looked forward to it as a kid. You know, like I said, we didn't get paid to do it. But I looked forward to being out with my family, with my dad, with my brothers. And it was just an adventure because we'd go down these dark alleyways at someone who really wanted it, the trip. And we would have to run this newspaper up. I think I was pretty young, probably like eight years old or younger. And like I said, this is my childhood memory. So some details might be off. So delivering papers was fun. 
Um, you know, if I did it now, probably wouldn't be fun. But as a kid, it was a fun thing to do. You just got to spend more time with your dad and brothers. And it was kind of like a scary little adventure. The guys that worked at the paper distribution center were also fun to watch. There were crazy people there, you know, getting up in the middle of the night doing this thing, wanting some extra money. So the kind of people you met, also very interesting. I just remember, I remember like vague images of this. It's kind of, if you've ever seen Lady and the Tramp, there's a scene where they go into this room and there's a bunch of adults walking around. It's kind of like a, a vague vision of what it looks like whenever you're a kid. I just remember like big men shouting, spitting, laughing, waiting outside by like a little fire until they left. And so as a kid, it was an adventurous thing. So did that for free. We always went around and tried to make a couple bucks. You know, we would shovel snow at our neighbor's driveways. We would try to rake leaves. We did all that kind of stuff, lemonade stands. But that wasn't the fun stuff. So my first real job was being a caddy at a country club near my house. So this country club was super old school. If you've ever seen a, sh a movie called or a show called, I think it's Red Oaks. Let me look it up. Yes, is that it? Yes, Red Oaks. It was this country club was exactly like that. Just old school. They charged an outrageous amount. Now this was like twenty years ago I did this. I started twenty two. I started whenever I was twelve years old. So I got my first real job when I was twelve years old. And I think the law back then was you had to be sixteen to work, but if you were a caddy, you could do it whenever you were younger, and the age limit was twelve. And they were charging a crazy amount to people. I think it was at least 15, 20 grand to be a member at this country club in not a wealthy area. Like, I did not grow up in a wealthy area at all. So, this was the only country club in the area. So, all the wealthy people would drive into this semi nice area and be a member. You know, we had people that went to our church that were members. I don't know how the heck they afforded it. This was like the one thing they did. You know, we had people that were teachers who were members at this country club and I'd know how they did it you know there's a guy now who's a college professor and I used to caddy for him back in the day and I was like how did you afford this it was like 22 years ago it was 15 20 grand a year and I think it was just you just wanted to be at the country club you just wanted to be a member so everything else went by the wayside you saved up all your money so you could be a member at this country club just so you could say I'm a country club member so I caddied for four years, and you could do single bag, you could do double bag. So single bag is whenever you have just one golf bag on your shoulder and you caddy for one golf. Now, that's pretty normal. But whenever you're a little more experienced, a little bigger, you can do double bag, which is where you have a golf bag on each shoulder and caddy for two golfers at one time. And now that I look back, I was like, man, I was doing it when I was like 14 years old. It probably like permanently curved my spine because these golfers were not good. There are now that I actually golf myself, I realize that I would have been like the best person at the country club, and I'm not even good. I'm just average. But man, these golfers were so bad. Our rounds took at least five hours on golf carts. And for me, you know, I want to get done in three hours, three and a half hours. And man, were these golfers bad. So we'd show up to the country club really early on Saturday, like 6 a.m., and just wait in the caddy shack. And it was just this cold stone hut, basically out of sight from the golfers and you just wait there until the caddy master came down and called your name he said hey it's time for you to come up caddy for this guy and he'd know if you were good if you were bad you know if you were an awkward kid if you could find balls if you were experienced and he'd kind of assign the caddies 
based on how, how well he knew you. And then what would happen is the golfers would drive up in their cars, the caddies would take their bags out and then put them up. And then the golfers were supposed to tip you whenever you grabbed their bags out of their cart. So this one guy pulled up and pulled his bag out. You know, you kind of walk around for a tip. It's just what every single person did. He does. He rolls his window up. He drives away. As he's driving away, he rolls his window down, flicks a quarter back with his thumb. It rolls on the ground. And me, like an idiot, I run and grab it and pick it up off the ground. <laughs> I ran back to the Caddyshack. And then once I got back, I realized what an idiot I looked like and how desperate and sad that moment was and what an asshole that guy was. I was like, man, this guy driving, I think it was like a BMW, flicked a quarter out at a 12-year-old on the ground, and this 12-year-old just scurried onto the road, grabbed the quarter, and ran back to the caddy shack, and was so happy for his quarter. Like, what a what a Scrooge, poor little Mickey Mouse moment that was. But that only happened once. I also got like $5 bills from some generous people, so the stories I remember are the, the funny, weird ones like that. And then you would golf for people. And like I said, most of these people were not good at all. They were at the country club just so they could be part of the community, part of the group. There was a pool there, there was tennis courts, all that kind of thing, just like Red Oaks. And I would caddy for these people, and I was not a good caddy. My, like, detailed memory of things that I don't care about, it's not great. Like, and when I was caddying, I did not care where their ball went. And guess what? That's a big part of caddying is finding their balls. But the course that I, the country club that I was at, the course was extremely hilly. There were, it was like the most hilly course in the large area around me. And there's just huge trees and forests everywhere. So these guys would be smashing their balls deep into the woods, into the creek, into the tall grass. You could, it took so long to find their balls. They could just never hit it in the damn fairway. And of course, me as the caddy, it's my job to find their ball. And if they're paying for a caddy, they expect the caddy to find the ball. But, you know, if yours is a professional television broadcast, there's a thousand people waiting around your ball. Plus there's like, you know, camera crews zooming up on your ball. You're never going to lose your ball at like a PGA tour. But for me, it's just me, 12-year-old me, this probably drunk golfer, smashing his ball into the woods. And then me walking with his golf bag after he zoomed up ahead, trying to find his golf ball. Occasionally it worked. Occasionally I found it. But most of the time, if they didn't hit the fairway, I wasn't finding that ball. I'm sorry, bud. I can't find it. And the pay wasn't great either. I think we got the average rate for one golf bag for like a five-hour round was $25. And back when I was 12 years old, $5 an hour, sure, I'll take that. But, man, it was some physical abuse carrying these guys' golf bags around because all these golfers had to have – it was – a competition to see who had the nicest golf bag and back in like the 90s the nice country club golf bags were like a hundred pounds and they were like leather all the way thick leather all the way around way more pockets than they would ever need you know the, these guys ha- had way more clubs than they were allowed or needed they all had their own names engraved and stitched into the side of the golf bag and it was just who could have the coolest golf bag and the coolest golf bag is the biggest golf bag and the biggest golf bag is the heaviest golf bag. And there's 12, 13-year-old me carrying this guy's golf bag around so he can look cool with his friends. Plus, I have to find his his ball. They never asked me to read the greens, thank God, because I would have 
I didn't even know what that meant back then. I was just trying to get the 25 bucks. But yeah, we there were some miserable golfers that that we uh, that I caddied for. There's a guy I know really well right now. He doesn't remember me as a caddy, but I know him. But I remember caddying for him, and I just remember for five straight hours he had just a scowl on his face, just dripping with sweat, upset, huge scowl, just swearing to himself, you know, yelling at me to get him the right club. We'd have to polish his little club, hand it to him. He'd hit it into the water, then I'd have to polish it again, put it in the bag. I mean, the the percentage of golfers who are actually decent is probably like 1%. There's most people out there golfing are really, really bad. The amount of people that can hit it in the fairway, probably 1% is a little, probably 5% of the people. So if you're nervous about getting out there and golfing, you shouldn't be because everyone's bad. The only people that are good are people you see on TV and 5% of people who actually play because a vast majority of people say they're way better than they are or they'll tell you they're average and it's not accurate or even people that are in like golf leagues like I'm in golf leagues people that are in golf leagues exaggerate everything and they say oh yeah I'm, I'm a blank average I'm you know I have a four handicap and then you golf with them they're hitting the balls into the woods everywhere and say oh this is a rough day for me yeah okay bud so anyway caddying good first job for a 12 to 16 year old whenever I got to like 15 year olds I was doing those double bags and I actually got to a point where I created a system to find the golf balls better so I had this like no I was so bad at it for so long I was like man I gotta get better at this I gotta actually find the guys golf balls so I do like a numbered system I'd be like they'd hit the golf they hit their drive it go to the right and say okay it's by the third tree and it's golfer number one and it's to the right. And I think I did right was like two. So I'd be like, okay, so one, three, two. And then the second golfer would hit it to the left, to the fourth tree on the left. So I'd be like, all right, two, four, two, something like that. And event, it worked for like two weeks. And I was like, oh, I've got it. I figured it out. And I was like, no, that's way too much work for this $25. And I just stopped. But a lot of lessons learned. There was one time where on Mondays we would have caddy-free golf day. And I never golfed. So I showed up to this Monday-free golf with my canister of beef jerky. You just take wads of it, chew it, it's delicious. I love beef jerky, especially if it was like shredded. It's like shredded, you know, moist beef that was seasoned. Man, I loved it. I could just eat tons of that. I still remember what it tasted like. And I was golfing with this other caddy who was four years older than me, way better. Like I said, I could barely swing the club. I just smashed it like a baseball bat and it hoped it went straight. So this kid pulls out a canister He's like, hey, you want some? I'm like, sure, I love it. I'm wearing like a white polo, khaki shorts on this really nice country club fairway. Grab it, grab a finger full, put it in my mouth, start chewing it. Disgusting. Really disgusting. I throw up all over my white polo. It was chewing tobacco. He gave me, assumed I knew that he was doing chewing tobacco and wasn't carrying around a canister of beef jerky like a like a toddler so I'm there with wet chewing tobacco and throw up all over my my white polo I was, he's like what happened it's like what kind of beef jerky was that it's like it's chewing tobacco I was like oh and then I just walked slowly back to the country club with this crap all over my white polo and probably walked home at that point Hopefully I changed. I don't remember the details after throwing up too much. So, fun times being the caddy. Now, some of my greatest memories 
come from working at McDonald's. There were, there's a McDonald's in my hometown. I also worked at a McDonald's in Youngstown, Ohio, which was fun. And you learn a lot of lessons working a job like that. And most people have worked McDonald's. I am not ashamed to say that I've done it. I did not grow up in a place where I didn't have to work. We had to work. Like I said, my first job was at 12 years old, and I was carrying golf bags. So when I worked at McDonald's, I was like, yes, I'm excited. I made it. I got to, I get I get a real job. I get an actual paycheck, and you can get a debit card and a bank account and all that kind of stuff. So at that time, the wage was five fifteen an hour. Now it's like $20 an hour to push carts to Target, and it's not that it's not long enough away from when I was where it should be the wage should be that high. But so it's five fifteen an hour to work at McDonald's. There was like multiple interviews. I don't know why. For everyone at that point, just multiple interviews to work at McDonald's. So I got the job when I was sixteen. That was kind of like my first real job because I got an actual paycheck. When I was a caddy, they just paid you in cash. So I got the paycheck. You had an actual hourly schedule workers and all that kind of stuff people you had to work with and I remember the uniforms I remember them being like this super thick like white dress shirt material and thick black pants and like super thick rubber shoes that were like anti-slip so you didn't slip on all the grease that was all over the floor at all moments of the day I remember what I smelled like when I came home I do like six hours at McDonald's I'd come home and my clothes were just like stiff and heavy from just like absorbing the smells of the grease all day. And I'm just throw it and I could just, I remember smelling my skin and just like, oh my God, I smell like grease. I just, it was, you could just like rub your hand and feel it. It was disgusting. But at the time, that didn't deter me from eating a lot of McDonald's because I was also playing a ton of basketball with my friends at that point in my life. We'd play like three, four hours at a time, and there's nothing we wanted more than a double cheeseburger or a McChicken. So the dollar menu back then was an actual dollar, and these decent-sized sandwiches were a dollar, and when you worked at McDonald's, you'd get 50%. So 50% off everything you bought. So our normal order was two McChickens, two double cheeseburgers, Sometimes we'd even throw like a 20-piece chicken nugget on there. And that's for one person. You know, as, as teenagers running around playing basketball can finally drive. That was just like our go-to order. Four bucks for that. So whenever I worked at McDonald's and got 50%, man, did we take advantage of that. There's times when we ordered $20 worth of dollar menu sandwiches. So 40 sandwiches. Give them a $20 bill. And that was it. So we'd have like 10 double cheeseburgers, 10 McChickens, and just fill the come up with bags of food we'd play basketball we just destroy all this food all night and then just feel horrible and then probably get back in the car and go out to wendy's and get like a frosty like we were animals about fast food when we were teenagers probably took like 10 permanent years off our life but man did we love it as soon as you got in a car you had freedom you had didn't have parents to say no you can't eat that yeah you don't have the discipline to say no Sometimes I'd bring home food for my family for McDonald's, you know, get a paycheck. I'd be like, oh, 50% off. I'd pay 10 bucks, bring home 20 sandwiches, a bunch of chicken nuggets, and we'd all we'd all feast on the McDonald's. Even though it was gross working there, and even though seeing, like, it's called a fry hopper, and for whatever reason, at the bottom of this big fry hopper, there'd just be a mound of grease at all times. Probably someone's probably supposed to clean it up. Probably me. 
but I didn't. And even though that was happening, you still, on your lunch break, still wanted McDonald's. It's probably the, you know, probably something in the food that just makes you makes you want it. But on my lunch break, I would still want the McDonald's. And this one time, you know, after working there for a couple of years, I was on my lunch break. You got the you got a free meal, so I ordered my meal, put it out on the counter, and I, you know, after working like after working ten minutes at McDonald's, you're ready to be out of there. But this was after like two or three hours. It was finally my lunch break. I'm just tired. You know, it's covered in grease. Just want to like go to sleep, take a shower. And then after your lunch break, you still have three more hours of dealing with the people that go into McDonald's. You know, I mean, people that go into the drive through McDonald's are one thing. People that go into McDonald's are a whole other thing, especially depending on what area, area you're in. So I'm on my lunch break. Meal's out at the counter. I go out to eat it. This guy looks at me, looks down at my food, just grabs my meal. I was like, hey, sorry, bud, that's my, that's my lunch. He goes, it's mine now. Starts eating it, looking at me eating it. And I am just in so much shock as to what just happened. And just like pissed off, upset that I'm there. I just start like shaking. Because all I wanted at that moment was some fries, a Coke, and a cheeseburger. And this guy just smiling, laughing, eating my lunch and staring at me. So my manager comes up, puts his hand on me. And says, Chris, let's just go to the back. And I just like shaking, didn't say anything, turn around. He just walks me to the back, gives me my meal, and I just eat back in the manager's office because he could tell I was about to explode. I would have been on, I w- if YouTube was popular back, back then, I would have been on YouTube for like a freak out at McDonald's. This other guy, you know, you'd have, you'd have people come in, the kind of people that you'd expect to come into McDonald's. I go into McDonald's too. McDonald's is good. But there's also some crazy people that go in there. There's some people that go in there every single day. There's people that I saw every single day, especially a bunch of old guys who would haggle over the price of a senior coffee. It was like a quarter. And they'd be like, oh, it was 26 cents, you know. Why is it 26 cents today? It was 25 cents yesterday. Or they'd try to screw over McDonald's with their deal. So McDonald's would have a deal that's like a, a breakfast McMuffin or a sausage and cheese, whatever they call that, was like a dollar so the guys would be like, oh, can I have a sausage and cheese add egg, which is a whole other sandwich. It's a sausage and cheese McMuffin for you McDonald's connoisseurs, which is a much more expensive premium sandwich. So they would try to do those things like, oh, no, 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 sorry, you can't do that. That was one of the smart ones. I'd say, you can't do that. That's actually the wrong sandwich. And they'd get real mad at me. And then they'd ask for their senior coffee. I'd have people come in. I'd have these old guys walk into McDonald's. They'd look around the floor. They'd find change, enough for a senior coffee. They'd pay me the 36, 26 cents, whatever it was, and sit down for three hours and just drink their coffee. It's very sad. It's very motivating. They're like, man, I do not want to be that person. I need to do some other things with my life. We would have the same group of people come in all the time. So I would, like over the summers, I would work like five days in a row, morning shift. Same group of dudes would come in, sit there for three hours, drink their senior coffees, have a you know, sausage McMuffin. Their total bill was like one thirty, so it'd spend like a dollar thirty every day. It's probably a great deal for them. Like a buck thirty times thirty, it's like forty bucks they would probably spend on breakfast. They're they're making their money. And, you know, you just got got to know the same people that came in every day. This one time this guy came in a little more well dressed than the most of the people that came in. 
it was him and another guy, and I was working the front cash register. So he, his bill was like 127. So he handed me a five plus 27 cents so we could get four dollars and change back. And he handed me the five and the 27 cents. And he goes to his buddy, he goes, <laughs> this guy probably doesn't even know why I gave him 27 cents. Meaning that I'm such an idiot because I work at McDonald's, I wouldn't understand that he wants $4 in change back. So I enter the change in the machine, it tells you what kind of change to give back, give him his $4. It's all registering in my head that this guy, what this guy said, how much of an idiot he thinks I am. But at that point, I'm just so tired and don't give a crap about anything. I'm just staring at him. And I just take it, <laughs> give him his change, gets his food, he leaves. But I was think, man, this guy is a huge jerk, you know. I, but it just happened. I didn't care. I worked at a different McDonald's, a McDonald's in Youngstown, Ohio, which, you know, it's not exactly the uh, richest city in the world, especially the McDonald's I was working at. Most of the people that worked there were from, like, a group home. Um, and this one lady... This homeless lady, she would walk around McDonald's in like a bathrobe and she would carry a teddy bear that looked like it was just soaking in the sewer for hours. So she would just be seen around McDonald's with a teddy bear at all times. And it was just so dirty. She was carrying it around. And I'd just sit, you know, it'd be, I'd have like be there at 5.30 a.m. sitting at the cash register looking out the window, just watching her. Like, I wonder when she's going to come in here. For like six months, she would just walk around there with her teddy bear. She would just hold it, sing to it. Just old lady, probably, I don't know, 70s, in a bathrobe, very dirty, homeless, carrying a teddy bear, singing to it, walking around. So, And then, you know, I'd have to walk past her on my way to work. I'd have to walk past, oh, excuse me, walk past her on my way back. And she came in one day at like 5.30 a.m. You know, I was out late the night before. This is at college. And I can, you know, I can barely function at that that early in the morning. I can barely talk to people. I can barely look at them. And this lady saunters up to the front counter, pulls her teddy bear out. She looks at me in the eyes, takes her teddy bear out, and just starts making out with her teddy bear in front of me. And I'm just staring at her, dead-eyed, like <laughs> I don't even say anything. I look around, people around me, no one else sees it. She's and then she pulls the teddy bear down, walks out of the store. One of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. It was like 5.45 a.m. at Youngstown McDonald's. And then she just went back out, held her teddy bear, and was just rocking back and forth on the street corner. It's like, okay. And then I worked another eight hours at McDonald's after that. And another eight hours worth of Youngstown McDonald's things happened to me after that moment. So it's good to go through these things so you can appreciate where you are and so you have good stories and so you can say, hey, I don't want to be doing this my whole life. You know, <laughs> This isn't the best thing for me to be doing my whole life. So it's nice to be able to work some of those jobs and not have a silver spoon the whole time. So other time at the same McDonald's, I was working early in the morning. All these crazy things happened early in the morning. And another homeless guy walked up. He says, hey, um, someone pooped on the floor in the bathroom, and they smeared it on the walls. And I was like, did you poop in the bathroom? He goes, yeah. And then he just, like, looks ashamed, turns around, walks out of the store. 
my manager came up. He's like, well, first off, I went and told the manager what happened. And then he told me, he's like, all right, yeah, can you clean that up? It's like, no, I'm not cleaning it up. At that point, big upgrade. I think at that, that McDonald's was getting like six fifty an hour. It's like, no, I'm not going to clean up this homeless guy's poop. That's all over the bathroom walls. So he did it. That's why he's getting paid the big manager bucks. The workers at McDonald's were crazy. Some of them were fine like me. They just were in it because, you know, they didn't have much of money handed to them. They needed a job. McDonald's was always hiring. Like a lot of my good friends worked at McDonald's with me. We would That, that made it a lot more enjoyable whenever you could kind of like embrace the suck together. Some of my, my brothers worked at McDonald's. And, you'd, you know, when you had shifts together, it was actually a good time because you could laugh and joke. And it was a better experience for the customer, too, because when workers are happy, guess what? You're getting a better sandwich. All right, so let's move on from McDonald's here. As fun as that was, there's a lot more stories, but those are the highlights. You know, I was there for, I think, two, maybe two years. I worked at various, two or three years, I worked at various McDonald's. So I worked at Target after McDonald's. I don't remember where exactly in my timeline, but at some point I worked at Target for probably a year. Didn't last her quite as long as McDonald's and Caddy. But this was probably 15 so years ago. And at that point, they had unrealistic expectations for their workers. I was a minimum wage employee making an hourly wage. You know, like I said, not like now where people are making $17, $20 an hour to push carts around. My brother worked at Target pushing carts. He was getting like $15 an hour. So I was getting like $6 an hour to work at Target, be a cashier work the customer service desk, which is the most nightmarish position you can ever get, being customer service at Target. And I'd get there on an early morning shift, and they'd have these sales meetings. So, you know, there's 30 people huddled around the manager in the main lobby by one of the cash registers, and they'd have this big wheel, like a carnival wheel, that they'd spin with numbers on it. And it was the daily sales target, as if any of us had any impact whatsoever on what Target could make. You know, every one of us is a minimum wage employee, stocking shelves, scrubbing the floors, pointing people to directions, and checking them out. So this was their attempt to, to pump us up for the day, to, to do nothing, to work whatever job we had. And no matter how hard we worked that day, I'm still getting paid the same, which was an issue for me. You know, I, can, I could be the most motivated, best Target employee that they've ever had. I'm still getting my $7 an hour or whatever it was at that point. So we'd have 30 people around this wheel. They'd spin it and be like, today Target's going to make $50,000. Everyone like, yes. For whatever reason, I was the only person there who understood that, hey, this is kind of a little BS. You know, why are, we, why are they pumping us up so they can get thousands of more dollars, but we're not getting anything more? We're not going to get paid anymore. It's like I'm getting a commission check. You know, it's not like if I bust my butt over the next month, I'm going to hit a hit a sales goal and I'm going to get a $5,000 commission check. A couple of things that happened to Target with me. This one time, this lady came through with a her cart, and I was working the cash register, and she would just bang her cart. She was banging her cart into my cash register, pushing it into it. And she goes to me, she goes, huh, why do you guys always make these carts magnetic? It's like, excuse me? This is after working like five hours, and I can barely see straight. I'm like, what? She goes, your carts, they're magnetic. I can't pull it away from your cash register. I said, you're pushing the cart into the cash register. I said, move it out an inch. And she did it, and then huffing and puffing, paid for her thing and left. Just like, And that, that whole interaction took 
30 seconds. You're a target for like six to eight hours. So how many of those interact, like how exhausting was that one interaction to deal with someone that dumb? Now you're there for six to eight hours. So that same type of thing is hap happens to you like 200 times a day. It's like, well, it's not, it's not hard to stand there and cash people out. No, it's not. But if you can take that many daily interactions of that kind of person, then you're a soldier. Because that kind of thing like really affected me. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't handle this. This other time, this lady, people would try to steal stuff all the time. And it, they just, the customer service policy back then was just like, if someone says the price is lower, you just give it to them. That's what our managers told us. They were just, you know, if someone, if a product was $50 and they said it was $35, you just change it and you just make it $35. We had people do it all the time. They'd come by and say, oh, this doll is on sale for $20. Um, and we'd be like, okay, let's change it, make it $20. Because it was pointless to fight it at all. There was a couple times when I first started, I was like, I would call a manager over, and they would just change it immediately. That happened like five, six times in a row. I was like, okay, well, then they obviously don't give a damn, so I'm just going to change the price. And this one time, I'd had enough, and this was when I quit. I had a lady bring me a doll and I was for whatever reason I was in the back of the store before I was at that cash register job so they had me like stocking shelves and then they moved me to cash register and I was back by these dolls and I saw the price it was like $36 and this lady grabs the doll brings it up to the cash register and says hey um I rung it up to $36 she goes oh no that's $27 I said, oh, you know what, actually, I was just, it's $36, I was just back there. And she goes, no, it's $27, because she was used to doing the same thing every single day, probably scamming Target out of thousands of dollars. And I was like, you know what, it's actually $27. I said, so I said, you know what, it's actually $36. And she goes, no, it's not, it's 27 She said, I'm going to get the manager over here. I was like, okay, go ahead. And I was there... After a long shift, tired, probably getting little, you know, not the best attitude. When you go when you go to a Target and see the employees, you want them to just be smiling and basically do whatever you want. And that wasn't a great position for me to be in. I didn't enjoy having to be forced into having that attitude. So I probably wasn't the best customer service person because for me it was like, well, this morally doesn't make sense. You know, <laughs> you're trying to rob this store of this money and I stupidly had an issue about that whenever it was obviously obvious that the people running the place didn't care but this one day had enough so she starts like verbally attacking me a little bit and I'm just giving her giving her attitude not backing down and it gets to the point you know before the manager comes over she says that after my shift she's her boyfriend's gonna be waiting for me outside in the parking lot and I, was, I didn't even care at that point. I was like, okay, good. Let's see what happens. We'll see if your boyfriend's out there when I'm done with my shift. And two hours passed. They, of course, left. Manager came over, checked the price. And this one instance didn't give her the sale. And then after that, I just had enough. I saved up enough money for whatever I was saving up for. And I just said, all right, I'm done. I called in. I called into the Target hot employee hotline. I said, uh, yeah, I had a situation at work today. I wasn't really comfortable with it. I think I'm going to quit. And it was like, okay, thanks for letting us know. And that was it. Like so many, their turnover was so much that it was just like they had a full-time job, just people processing the people quitting and hiring for that one store. Another weird job I had was working at a place called One Call. Now, this was a call before you dig 
call center. And I worked there because at that time they were, they were paying a lot, way above average because there's a little bit more responsibility. These are people you called into and said, hey, can I dig in my backyard so I don't blow myself up because I want to build an in-ground pool? And you'd call someone like me, and I would pull up this computerized map that had all the pipelines already on it, and I would tell you if you're allowed to dig, or I'd tell you exactly where the pipes were, where the gas lines were. So there's this business by our house that had, that was this call before you dig center, and they would be the call center for various states. I was assigned to Texas. Now, I was one of many people in our family who worked there, and the first person in our family who worked there did way too good of a job, and he set the standards way too high. He was really organized about it. And then after him, it just the skill level just went down and down. So I was I got to work with a bunch of interesting people and talk to a lot of interesting people on there, including someone from a nudist camp. So I was the Texas one call guy, and what I would do I just sit at my desk and wait for the phone to ring. So the phone would ring. It'd be like a farmer in Texas, and he'd be like, "Hey, I want to." One time he's like, "Hey, I want to bury my horse." And he'd call us, and he'd be like, okay, I am 50 feet off of State Road 29 to the northeast, and it's going to be a square foot radius, a 50-square-foot radius. And I'd have to check my map and enter those things in and say, yes, you're good to go, or sorry, there's a pipeline right there. Or we'd have to notify the utilities that he's going to be digging. That's mostly what we did. We'd notify the utilities that this guy's going to be digging. And then it's, the utility company would, with spray paint, mark where the pipes are like the natural gas line electrical line stuff like that so one time this guy comes in he's kind of embarrassed he's like yeah i have i'm at this um blah 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 gives me the directions i find it on the map he goes i have this really big hole i need to make in the ground i was like oh what are you what are you making and he was like a pool it's great and i had to enter the name of the camp he was at it ended up being like a nudist camp and he was so embarrassed to tell me so he's building this pool for this nudist camp out in the the sticks of Texas. One time, it was probably at the end of my shift, I didn't have my directions correct, which is not good for that job. 99% of the time, I was very accurate, but this one time, I wasn't. So this guy said, on this road, I'm, with the, I'm to the east of this road, and map out like a 500-square-foot grid for me. So I had to map it out, and then call the utilities, and they had to come out and draw the lines on it. And I went to the west, which is not good. So he started his project to the east of the road where he told me and found some pipelines. Luckily, he didn't blow himself up or hit like a gas pipeline. So he had to call a call center. Like, hey, I just talked to this dude. He gave me the wrong thing. So I got my, my wrist slapped. Didn't get fired amazingly. I would have fired myself, but they didn't fire me. Um, but after that, I had put sticky notes on my screen based on how I was looking at the map that said east and west, north and south, just, just in case. If I was tired that day you know, at my job, I, I wouldn't make that mistake again because that really freaked me. I was like, oh my goodness, this guy could have backhoed into a gas line and basically blown himself up because I was tired that day. So I put those sticky notes up. I did find a great way to avoid getting calls, which isn't the best thing. So it was me and one other girl working the Texas One Call system. And what would happen is the phone system was set up to go to her and then to go to me. It would rotate between the two of us. Somehow they were able to set it up like that. I figured out 
that if I just lifted my phone up and put it back down on the hook, she would automatically get the calls. So she would get like multiple calls in a row while I was sitting at my desk because she would get a call and then as soon as she hung up the phone, I would lift my thing up and put it back down and the system would think that I just had a call so it would give her the next call. So she'd get like five, six calls in a row. And I remember one day she was like, you've been sitting here for 30 minutes and didn't get a single call. What's happening? I was like, yeah, I don't know, crazy. But didn't do that all the time, but it was kind of funny. All right, everyone, I did take a little break there. I was having too much fun talking about my old jobs, and then I had to go to my physical therapy for my shoulder, which was an hour and a half, and then after that, I went to cryotherapy, and after that, I was so cold, I wet my hot tub, then I took a power nap. So I'm back. It's about two and a half hours later, but not for you. It's going to keep on rolling. So I'm going to keep on going through here because I'm just having fun talking about this, reminiscing about my old days and old, old random jobs I had. So I think I left off talking about one call and all the crazy people I uh, got to talk to on the phone. We talked about the nudist camp, me scamming the phone system. Um, but I also worked at Macy's for like a month. What happens whenever you're in college is you come home, you know, if you're the kind of kid and live in the kind of family where you have to work. So I'd come home from college on my breaks and I have to find a job for like 30 days. So went to the local mall and Macy's was hiring for the Christmas holiday and went in there, got a job, they hired me. And I would be working at the women's, like the 40 to 50 year old women's sweater department. So I'd be working there, I worked at the jewelry department, I worked at the um, watch department, I sold watches. And I was a pretty good salesman. I learned some basic sales skills there, even though at that point I didn't get any commission. I still, for whatever reason, wanted to sell the watches. That kind of lighted a little fire in me to get better at some sales stuff. But whenever I was upstairs selling women's sweaters, you know, I basically I was just folding clothes, wandering around, and trying not to be seen by anyone. Because the biggest nightmare for me would be being spotted by some 55-year-old woman and having her ask me if, you know, hey, do you know where this polka dot red sweater by Calvin Klein is? It's a size 34, and I'd pick no. So basically the entire game for me was try not to be found. So I would just, Macy's is huge, so I would just go from place to place, unfolding clothes, folding them back on. It could be a, a display that was perfectly neat and beautiful, and I would just mess it up, do it again, make sure I looked like I was busy the entire time. This is, these are like my college days so when I was on break and not practicing saxophone. So, you know, Macy's was not my uh, life calling, but I learned some basic sales skills and also how to be kept busy. I landscaped a lot. Um, I landscaped for probably four years throughout all this whole period. There was one legitimate landscaping company I worked for and an illegitimate landscaping company I worked for. And what I began to, to learn with, and all my brothers worked for landscaping companies at some point in their lives, is that anyone can start a landscaping company. Really, anyone can start any business. And the quality of person you meet on that journey varies greatly. You know, the, the legitimate landscaping company had payroll, human resources, person, they had schedules, you got paid on time, they had equipment, you know, all of the, the things that you would be like, well, yeah, of course, but yeah, whenever you go towards these kind of new small business people who just, you know, buy a lawnmower and call themselves a landscaping company, you can run into anyone. 
and the legitimate guy was actually a, a really good business businessman, and I enjoyed having truck rides with him where he would talk to me about starting a business and if I would ever want to start a business, and he talked to me about his journey. But he also kind of got hot-headed sometimes, and we went to this. One of his buddies was a dog trainer, and they had a huge farm, and our job for that day was we were cutting down like 15 trees, grinding the stumps, cutting it up into firewood, and then mulching all of the, or chipping all the branches into a, and a, and a into a, excuse me, into a chipper. And these chippers for these kind of jobs are really big, really dangerous. So I was the chipper guy. So the other people would be cutting down the trees and they would make a huge pile of branches by me. And I would just one by one throw the branches into the chipper. And this is like an eight hour day. We're about an hour away from our house. And it's sunny and I'm just getting tired. So I'm just throwing, pushing these branches into the chipper slowly, methodically. And I must have not have looked very safe doing it because the lady who who lived at the house came running out. She was like, oh my goodness, you almost got swept in there. She was like, the branch behind you was coming and you know, you're, you were bent all the way into the chipper. I was like, that shocked me because I, I could just imagine myself getting pulled into this chipping machine over something stupid like not paying attention. And from then on, I was just wide awake for the rest of the time. But you know, you're for eight hours straight throwing branches into a chipping machine. You can daze off a little bit and forget that. Man, in front of you is death. You know, because the danger is that I put a branch, a long branch into the chipping machine and behind me, there's a horizontal branch that pushes me forward as the big branch is being pulled forward. And that would have been it for me. Um, a ton of great guys I work with there um, that, you know, kind of cycle through. Then you also have the guys who are there for their entire careers, who are the foremen. And but any landscaping job is makes you realize, hey, do I want to do this forever? Do I want to do this hard physical manual labor forever? Or do I want to move on to something? And for me, it made me realize, yeah, I want to, I don't want to do this forever. And then I had the illegitimate landscaping company I worked for, where basically, we had to kind of outsmart the guy to just get basic things like getting paid. So we would show you say, okay, meet me at this house at 730am, we would get there at 730am, he would show up at 845. And then he would say, okay, well, you get paid from 8.45 to, you know, 3. We'd say, no, we were here at 7.30. I said, yeah, but I didn't get here till 8.45, and we didn't start working until 9. So, you know, you only got six hours. And luckily, I had a big crew of people with me, and he was easily pressured into things. So we were able to pressure him into, yeah, actually pay us at the right time. It was kind of like a Michael Scott type of character on The Office where he wanted to be one of the bros, but he also had to be the boss but he also wanted to, he was also greedy, he wanted to make money. So within there were all kind of situations. Like no one ever wanted to ride in his truck to the job. So we'd, we'd go from one job to the next job and it would be a race. Okay, who can get into the other truck, into the employee truck? We don't have to ride with the boss. You know, and then he'd come over to us and be like, all right, who wants to ride with me? And we'd, like, oh, and we'd just pick someone and say, he wants to ride with you. And that was the whole game is who, who gets to ride with the guy in the truck. That's the, landscaping was another time when, I learned the whole game about, you know, riding out the clock, another office thing where, where uh, they're saying, I forget who they're talking to, but they go, this is a riding out the clock situation. You know, whenever you're around that, those kind of people, that kind of job, you're in the searing sun, just pushing wheelbarrows and mulch, um, and you get paid by the hour, you know, and you find a shady spot, 
boss isn't around, they're like, man, I need to just sit in the shade for a little bit, get away with it for 30 minutes, and let it be okay. You know, have an eight-hour job, take four hours, and relax for four hours. Those are the kind of, like, strategies and things that you think about whenever you're on these hourly manual labor jobs is, you know, all these little workarounds to get. People always find ways to get ahead no matter what situations they're in. And whenever I was surrounded by, you know, as a young kid with all these veteran landscape people, they, you know, I'd say, hey, uh, it's lunchtime. Shouldn't we go on lunch? Or lunch is over. Shouldn't we? No, 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 no. That's not how we do things here. So <laughs> you meet lots of different people working at all these jobs, and I'm grateful for that. Eventually, I got into kind of digital marketing things, and I had I have an ad agency. Still do. I'm more into affiliate marketing now, but I still have an ad agency. I still have some clients, but before it was full bore. You know, I was nonstop looking for clients. So it'd be, we'd be on sales calls all the time, and so we we run ads for we find clients for lawyers, for you know landscaping companies, for doctors, for realtors, mortgage brokers, anyone that has a business that needs clients. We kind of run ads or messaging campaigns, different things to bring them clients. So to get to that point, you have to learn a set of skills, but you also have to be on sales calls, which are fun when you close the client or if you're talking to someone. But if you are stuck with a person <clears throat> who knows, excuse me, who knows they're not going to close, who knows they don't want your service, but just wants to talk, man, is that a nightmare. Because that's your life just wasting away there. You know, if you close the client, then sure, you can get a ten, twenty thousand dollars contract. But if you don't, then you just wasted an hour and a half of your life, you know, when your kids are at home, just wanting you to be there and play with them. So I had so many of those calls. Or just people that you got on calls with when I was inexperienced and I didn't know when to end the call. That's another skill is knowing when to end the call. Hey, this guy's not going to close. Stop wasting everyone's time. He's unqualified. Stop it. But whenever you're, you have to get to that point. You have to learn to, to get to that point. So I'd just be on these calls forever. You know, I'd work my, I was doing this as I had my normal nine to five job. So I'd work eight hours and then I'd have an hour and a half long sales call that didn't close. And I'd be, I'd be leaving my job at like 530 when I could have left at 330 or four. And it was just a nightmare. And because I kept on going at that time because the guy, I thought, this guy still might do it. If I say the right thing at the right time, this guy still might close. If I can pull the right thing out of this of this guy, he still he still might do it. It never happened for those kind of people. The easiest people to close were the people who needed what we had and could afford it and were successful. Because we had these realtors. There's one time in the span of 90 minutes, I closed two realtors right in a row and it was like $40,000 worth of contracts for six to 12 months of work and for both of them they were both highly successful realtors from Boston and it was just back to back and it was bam bam 90 minutes had you know the biggest for me that was the biggest closing session I've ever had is with a 90 minutes close 40 grand worth of worth of contracts and that was so easy because those just went by so quickly and then you go back to the other people who just never close and to string you along forever so they can feel good about themselves so they can be like, yeah, look, I, I got it over on this sales guy. He's not going to get me. It's like that's the whole game for them, for these people that never close. The game for them is how long can I keep this guy on the phone without closing because then I feel good about myself. It's like, great, but then we n neither of us got what we wanted. I, did, I, don't, I didn't get your business. I don't get to help you. you know, I don't get paid. 
and you stay where you're at and you don't get clients or advertisements. You know, not, no one won here. It's just a waste of both of our time. But the more I did it, the better I got at recognizing those, those kind of people and being able to navigate, do I want to invest my time in this or not invest my time with this? And what I'm more focused on now is running a community, providing support to people, showing other people how to do what I do, and growing this Rising Father brand. But before that, you know, I was really, really focused on the agency thing. And I'll tell you what, man, clients can be time suckers. They can be life suckers. So I'm happy to be kind of out of that world. I still have, I still keep clients that I enjoy. I still keep clients that are low maintenance, that appreciate what we do and pay on time. So I still keep those clients around, but I'm not taking, I'm not actively searching for tons of new clients. If you're out there, I'm not. So <laughs> don't reach out. Um, but yeah, I'm grateful for all these experiences because I learned valuable skills from every single job. When I was a caddy, I learned it was my first job of dealing with people that I didn't want to be around and kind of sucking it up so I could get paid. You know, I was stuck with this miserable guy for five hours and I just sat, not sat there, I just stuck with him for five hours so that I would get paid. And that's a skill you have to learn. You know, you can't treat as a kid you have to learn you can't treat everyone like you treat your parents like for a lot of kids if you if you whine and complain you get what you want no if eventually you're going to have to make money you're going to have to do something for someone where they give you money so my first experience as a caddy was that it was i need to carry this guy's bags for him so he doesn't have to carry them find his ball sometimes and you know, make his golfing journey a little bit more pleasant. And because of that, he'll give me 20, 25 bucks, even if he's miserable and, you know, doesn't treat me well. Hey, if I want that 25 bucks, I'm going to have to suck it up and just do it. If I would have said, hey, I don't, I wish you would smile more and talk to me more. Great. Sure. I made my point, but then I leave and I don't get paid. So just learning to put up with some crap to get paid is a valuable life skill. You know, McDonald's, same thing. Man, did I put up with a lot of crazy people there, a lot of crazy, uncomfortable physical situations working that kind of job. You know, it's, it's different when you're behind your own grill making food for friends and family, but whenever you're working a grill, slapping those hamburger patties down for people you don't know and, and getting, you know, the kind of treatment you get from some of the customers, it's not a great situation. Learned lessons from all my jobs, and they have great stories. It's great to tell people about you know my time working. So, hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed going back down memory lane and thinking about my past stories. If you have any crazy jobs that you worked, if this is YouTube, go ahead and put that in the comments. I'd love to read about them. I love hearing about all these crazy jobs that people have. Um, just makes me laugh. Good stories to tell. All right, guys, kind of. That's it for today. Kept it a little light. That's all right, right? All the past episodes have been really intense learning and me sharing experiences and life lessons. This one, some life lessons in there, but more so just you learning a little bit more about me and me sharing some experiences. So thank you so much for joining me on this Rising Father podcast, episode nine. And please give it a review on whatever platform you're on, Apple preferably. Please share it with your buddies. Please like it if you're on YouTube. Please subscribe. All right, guys. I'll see you.